Welcome to the Real Estate Way to Wealth and Freedom podcast with Jacob Ayers, providing actionable content to help you along your journey to financial freedom through real estate investing. As the premier asset class, real estate has helped ordinary people just like you amass fortunes. The benefits of passive income from real estate investing will allow you to live a life you want. And now your host, entrepreneur, real estate investor, and apartment deal syndicator, Jacob Ayers. Welcome to the Real Estate Way to Wealth and Freedom podcast. I'm your host, Jacob Ayers. This is episode 386. Welcome back. I'm so glad you're here. Well, hey, today's guest is Dr. Mark Curry. Dr. Mark Curry is a real estate investor. He's the vice president and co-founder of SMK Capital. He's been doing real estate for the past 15 years from underwriting and acquiring deals, raising capital, asset management, taking many deals full cycle. He's got a lot of experience and knowledge. Today, we're going to kind of talk to Dr. Mark Curry about what it means to be diversified in the world of real estate investing, talking about geographical diversification, asset class diversification, and so much more. So let's go ahead and jump right into this week's episode with Mark Curry. All right, today, welcome on the show, Mark Curry. Mark, hey, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, hey, Jacob, good to be here. Yeah, it's our pleasure. Well, hey, Mark, kind of take a second and tell us about who you are, your experience in the real estate investing world, kind of your background, your journey to where you are today. Sure, yeah, I think I started out in corporate finance, doing a lot of budgets and planning and really some internal auditing, a lot of spreadsheets, Jacob, right? And then that transitioned pretty well into real estate investing. It's kind of what caught my interest. 2005, I bought my first place just after work, go and fix it up and live in it and kind of a little bit by doing. And then the market skyrocketed in value at the time. And I thought I was a genius. I pulled out some money and my brother and I partnered up. We bought a fourplex in Hollywood, California. I always tell everybody we overpaid. We over-renovated. We took too long. It was 75% vacant when we bought it. And so dove in head first, a lot of long nights to say the least, learned a lot from the Home Depot staff and micromanaged <laughs> all the contractors and again, all while working, right? And so did another one, another one, and just partnered with my father, my brothers, my cousins, my uncles, and a nice portfolio. By the time 2009 hit, basically, we were focusing on distressed, right? There was a ton of blood in the streets. You could buy stuff at 50, 60% off. A lot of what we were buying was really all, I would say, heavy value add, vacant for a couple of years, REOs, foreclosures, short sales, and all cash, and then renovate and sell or renovate and hold rental. And by 2010, I was hooked and went full-time, started our company and started having other partners come in on our deals. And kind of the rest is history, as they say. So you kind of made it through that 2008 crash unscathed or how did that go for you? Yeah, good question. I mean, relatively unscathed. We didn't lose any money, but we did see fluctuations in demand for rents. And this is in just a few markets, primarily in Southern California at the time, in Los Angeles, where I was living and we were investing. We saw rents go 10 to 20%, but again, it wasn't enough to 
lose anything or the asset. So it was really just more weighted out, which is what we did. Everything. We didn't really sell anything in the recession. So you buy your first kind of rental, like many people do, work in a nine to five day job. What was your motivation for doing that? Oh man, I'll tell you, I was sitting in a conference room at 10 o'clock at night at my corporate job. There's like four or five of us in the room working on some project that just to be honest with you, wasn't very interesting. But I remember one of the gentlemen in the room was probably in his mid forties at the time. And I was probably what, I don't know, 20, 25-ish. I'm looking over at him. It's 10 o'clock at night. I'm saying, man, he's married. He's got kids. Like, what is he doing in this room on a Tuesday at 10 o'clock with me of all people? Like, I'm nothing. I don't know anything. <laughs> so I just had kind of an awakening like, oh, that could be me in 15, 20 years, whatever it was at the time. And I just started opening up my eyes. And we were taught uh, growing up as kids for me and my family and where I went to school in upstate New York, where I was raised, work your butt off, go to school, get a good education you know, and then go get a good job. And that was kind of a step one, two, three, four. And so then you kind of realize, well, geez, that may not get you everything you want. And so I started opening up my eyes to other options and uh, really just more entrepreneurial spirited and how can you become financially free and started reading and learning and just going down that rabbit hole and never ended. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, definitely. I can think of those times where I'm like sitting in my day job. I don't want this to be my future in 20 or 30 years. I want more, right? Nothing wrong with what you're doing at the time. You're working a good day job. You've you know, made a career for yourself. But at the same time, you know that there's more out there and there's more life to live than 10 o'clock in a conference room, crunching numbers for some project that doesn't matter, right? Correct. So you buy that first kind of small multifamily. You've got a kind of a family operation going on for several years. You're buying stuff. You're renovating it, selling some stuff, holding some stuff in your portfolio. How were you scaling? How were you growing? Were, you know, you mentioned all cash purchases. You know, sure. kind of how did you make that next pivot? We were taking advantage of what the market was giving us at the time, which was deeply discounted, distressed residential real estate and small multifamily, usually twelve units or less. And we built that portfolio up. We grew it. I think over the years we ended up buying, holding, flipping over 50, 60 single-family properties and in multiple markets in the U.S. But at the same time, by 2010, Jacob, I was self-employed, right? I was an entrepreneur and I had my retirement plan from my corporate jobs kind of sitting idle, you know, 401k, there's no matching once you go work for yourself. So I shifted it all over to a self-directed IRA so that I could start investing passively in other deals, right? And put that money to work. So I went out on a, a kind of a networking binge for a couple of years, meeting just a ton of people. I would say the old-fashioned way, Jacob, right? In-person, shaking hands, talking with your mouth, and learning a lot from experts that had been doing things for years that I found quite compelling. And at the time, I was looking again, myself and my father, we were looking like, hey, what should we do other than just buying our own stuff? How do we diversify our own money into other deals? And we started looking at mobile home parks because they had done well through the recession. We looked at self-storage. Yeah. They had done well through the recession. And so met some savvy folks that got us access to some really great opportunities, some great people, number one. And we started investing kind of passively, right? 25K, 50K. We did that for a number of years in addition to our kind of operating business. And that's how we were able to diversify our strategy is diversification. And they'll do that today. We do a lot less, what I would call active single family today for a lot of reasons. But 
that's essentially how we've evolved to where we are today. We focus on four main asset classes, which you and I just touched on previously, but those are apartments, mobile home parks, self-storage, and ATMs. Those are kind of our four core today where we think the best risk-adjusted returns are. Let's talk about what that term diversification means to you, Mark. I mean, your company behind you is SMK Capital Management Real Estate Diversified, right? It's a pillar in your business, right? Diversification through different asset classes. Now, I've heard people tell me in the past, yeah, I'm well diversified. My retirement account and my 401k, right? My employer matched 401k plan, which is their primary vehicle for retirement, is diversified across large cap, mid cap, small cap companies, blue collar, blue chip companies, you know, all these different things. And you think, well, that's not really that diversified, in my opinion. What's it mean to you? Sure. I would say, I would agree with you there. What you're talking about there, everything there is essentially correlated to the overall economy and the market can have large fluctuations in valuation. You could lose money overnight in all of those asset classes that you just sectors that you just mentioned. So within real estate, we want to be very diversified as well. And that's what our focus is. We don't offer really anything else other than real estate focused investments. Now, what does that mean for us? Well, there's a few areas we want to diversify across. We want to diversify across people, number one. Operating partners. We like high pedigree, very specific focus, niche experts in one thing. And then we do that with each asset class and then a strategy within those asset classes to really spread our people risk. Number two is asset class, of course. I mentioned our top four, but we've invested in probably a dozen asset classes within real estate over the years. And number three is geography, obviously location. And so we feel that by kind of making those three diversification plays consistently with our investment strategy, reduce our overall portfolio risk. So let's talk about those four asset classes you mentioned. Those are ATMs, apartments, mobile home parks, and self-storage. Kind of give us a high-level overview of why you like each one and how you feel that they're diversified from the others. Yeah, that's a great question. So. I'll start with ATMs. ATMs are a very high cash flow income stream investment. There's no growth or appreciation <laughs> uh, because you're investing in equipment which actually depreciates, has great tax advantages, and produces a lot of cash flow, but there's no appreciation and growth. And so that's a very unique strategy that we love, but it's not everything, right? If you could yeah. find the perfect investment, it would have very high cash flow and very high growth and appreciate. The cash flow alone is really the main standing point for ATMs produce, you know, north of 20% cash on cash each year. Self-storage is very stable as far as income, as far as recession resistance, as far as growth. We love self-storage. It's just a little harder to find markets and then deals within those markets that we find are insulated to new supply. That's kind of the biggest risk in self-storage. You could build them quick. And the new stuff is usually rented out or the, the street rate is almost the same price as the old stuff. And so you can have an oversupply situation quickly. So we're cautious about that, but historically storage has been resilient. COVID, recession, you kind of name it, it's, it's stayed strong and we think that's continue. Mobile home parks, really just behind our overall thesis of affordable housing, the demand for it, the lack of supply. That disequilibrium alone is a trend that we track consistently, and I don't think it's going anywhere. It's just growing as far as the lack of supply and the increase in demand. And mobile home parks 
often the most affordable housing solution, Jacob, right? And so yeah. we love them. And of course, apartments, we're very specific on what type of apartments. We focus on class B workforce housing in growth markets that are stabilized at acquisition that have a value add upside. Yeah, okay. so That's a mouthful. It's on purpose. There's a lot of apartments we don't invest in. The ones that we do, we think have just a really great balance of risk and return. Yeah, I understand now how you've kind of diversified across all of these different asset classes and the reasons why. But at the same time, that can kind of be difficult to do, right? I mean, you have to know all of these different things about ATMs and self-storage. So how have you been able to do that in your business and find great operators that know their one thing? Yeah, that's the nature of our business, right? That's the competitive advantage, I think, that we focus on day in and day out, Jacob. So we started, again, personally investing with operating partners across different asset classes. So really, it began by, and we never thought it, we were going to evolve to where we are today. We're really just become a private equity real estate investment company. But we started by testing our operating partners with our own money, seeing how they do. Do they do as they say they're going to do, right? That's the level of trust that we need to have on all different facets, right? From verbal to performance to communication, all of that needs to be there for us to feel comfortable and be excited to work with people in the operating partner space. So we started by doing our own investing and we built relationships, Jacob, over the years with different operating partners. And you know, those relationships evolve over time. So today we kind of get deals. How do we get deals? I'll say this. We look at 10 to 20 deals a month and we invest in about five to 10 a year. And so we are constantly looking at opportunities from our operating partners that a lot of them just don't meet our requirements as far as investments go. But those that do, we will bring them to the table and offer them as an investment opportunity to our investors to participate yeah. in. Sure. Yeah, so I don't know if that kind of helps, but it's been a long process. It's taken many years to develop these relationships and to have a foot in the door. But essentially what we do is we partner with other investment firms, operating partners that are specialists in one thing. And that can take you know, six, 12 months, two years to develop those relationships. And it's part art, part science, to say the least. There's a lot that goes into it. And so, yeah, that's essentially how we have evolved and how we get deal flow today. It's just yeah, through sure. relationships. Mark, here we are in July of 2021. The past 18 months have been unique to say the least. And I'm sure our future is going to be full of, I don't know, who knows, right? But what kind of opportunities are you seeing right now? And what's kind of like your perspective on the market, if you will? Yeah, a long-winded question. We could go deep there, but I'll give you some kind of some brief points because this is something we track regularly. I'll say this. In 2020, we did one investment. That's it. On purpose. We stopped almost everything in about February, March of 2020 with the pandemic, of course. And we waited and we learned and we read and we talked and we just trying to figure out what's going on. Is the world falling apart or is it not? And by the summer, it had become a lot clearer, not completely clear, of course, but a lot clearer that, okay, there may not be blood in the streets here. We may not see distressed opportunities. We may not see deeply discounted real estate available. And we started to actually keep our eyes open for opportunities that we thought could weather a storm and continue to focus on income and growth and continue to perform, right? And so fast forward to kind of where we are today, we've got about a year, year and a half of data that we look at across each of our asset classes, across our own portfolio, and on a macro level 
to determine where's the best opportunity to invest today and continue to remain positive performance. And there's a lot of tailwinds right now. I'll say this, COVID and the reaction of the government, the Fed, this time is different in my opinion, because we have seen what a fast, enormous amount of capital injected into the system can do. Again, a very macro level, what has it done? It has avoided a down, a major downturn. And in, through that process, we have a huge supply-demand disequilibrium across housing specifically. And I can get into a lot of data there, but at the end of the day, there's not enough homes for the amount of people. Actually, there was a report that came out just last month, 5.5 million units deficient in housing across the US today. It's going to take at least a decade based on development in the pipeline and historical development coming online, at least a decade to fill that. So you have a situation where, and it's pent up, it's not like this 5.5 million happened overnight. It's been growing, but it's been exacerbated in specific markets have had a lot of population change. And those are the markets we've been focusing on for a number of years, been the beneficiary of some of these relocation trends. Think about Texas and Phoenix and Las Vegas and these types of areas in the South, Southeast, Southwest. That's where you've got very high net in migration. You've got a lot of job growth, a lot of companies moving there. And they're still relatively very affordable when you compare them to some of the markets that people are leaving. Think about New York and Los Angeles and San Francisco and places in Illinois. And so that's a big part of our thesis is where are things going? What has shifted? And do we think that's going to continue? And we believe it will. So I'll also mention a few other points, Jacob, with interest rates and cap rates. Nobody knows, of course, where they're going. Interest rates have been low for a number of years, even pre-COVID. Obviously, they still remain low today, very attractive borrowing rates. And cap rates were low pre-COVID. They've been going down for a decade, right, on commercial real estate. And they're just going lower. And so what we're seeing is that supply-demand disequilibrium is causing a ton of demand for housing from residents, the user, and from investors, the owner, the buyer, the seller. And what's doing is it's creating asset price inflation. It's creating rent growth at levels that we haven't seen. And we think that's here to stay in a lot of markets for at least the near term, which I'll say the next one to three years. And so right now we're trying to acquire as much as we can in these specific assets so that we can be net sellers in the next three to 10 years. Do you think that this asset price inflation we won't call it a bubble, but just asset price inflation overall is skewing risk profiles in different asset classes. Let's take multifamily, for example, maybe a class C apartment, which used to be what we'd call affordable is maybe getting to that point where it might not even be affordable for that tenant now. It is. Yeah, definitely a concern that we think is going to stay with us. There's going to be a lot of people who are going to be priced out of these markets, Jacob. It's sad, but it's probably the reality at the same time. And so I think that gap between what people can afford and what the going in rates are on some of these apartments, to say the least, affordable housing, mobile homes, et cetera, is going to be tightened for to spend a lot more of their income on housing. But at the same time, what we're seeing is that that effect is already happening. It has been happening. And the markets that are really pricey, like the ones I noted a minute ago, people are leaving. And COVID, there's a relocation event going on in the U.S., that has been fueled a lot by COVID. People are leaving these higher priced cities and they're moving to more affordable markets. So we recently took a look at like Los Angeles, two bedroom apartment on average is like $3,800 a month 
Phoenix, five and a half hour drive from Los Angeles is like 1400 a month. And so that's what's going on. You're seeing a lot of these drivers of affordability. People are moving, they're relocating. Of course, a lot more people are working from home. And so they can often choose where they want to live and they're choosing lower cost, more affordable markets. Have your guys' investment, let's call them priorities, changed going forward? Are you investing for cash flow or more appreciation, wealth preservation, wealth creation? Have things changed for you guys and your outlook going forward? It changed for us in about 2017, Jacob. At that time, we started seeing a lot of signals in the marketplace that we were at the peak of a cycle and there could be a downturn, a recession. And so we made a pretty specific change in our focus and our thesis at that time to really only go forward in investing in asset classes and strategies within those asset classes that we felt could continue to perform in a recession. And so we actually created a recession-resistant fund in 2018. We closed it in 2019. And sure enough, 2020, recession, right? And so I guess the point of it is, you know, not like we have a crystal ball, we know what's coming. Uh, We are constantly monitoring the market cycles and trying to best position capital. But really, our investment thesis hasn't changed that much because we've essentially been somewhat preparing for a downturn for five years. And really what we focus on today is the same assets within these asset classes, the strategies in them uh, hasn't changed too much. I will say this, we used to avoid short-term deals pre-COVID because again, we were worried about a potential correction. We're a little less worried about that happening again. And so we're a little bit more bullish on shorter-term deals, Jacob, right? Because I think if, listen, if there's another pandemic, another major downturn next year, there's a very high likelihood that Americans are going to get checks in the mail again. and that rent can be deferred and loan payments can be, you know, the same things that have never happened before will most likely happen again, which can help mitigate a major downturn or a major loss in valuation. Sure. Well, Mark, I know you're a numbers guy, you're a math guy, well-versed in the spreadsheets and your background in underwriting, right? So how are you underwriting deals going forward? Are you seeing anything differently? Are you guys projecting large income or large expense growth, large income growth. What's your outlook there? Yeah, I think we try and remain as conservative as we can today, Jacob, while still investing. Because if you're overly conservative, you're not going to buy anything. The prices are going to be way above what you would ever pay. And so that's the reality today. Going in cap rates, some of the markets we invest in and the asset classes we invest in, they're low. They're very low, Jacob, right? Talk about low threes. How much lower can they go? You know, I've been asking myself that question for a couple of years and we don't know. It doesn't mean we don't invest. What we do is we look primarily at kind of five main variables in underwriting that we want to make sure we're very comfortable with the assumptions and the projections. The first is occupancy, economic occupancy, and you have physical occupancy. Physical is how many people are living there. Economic is how much of them are actually paying, right? And so- We always try and underwrite. We look at existing data on the assets. How have they been doing? Trailing three, trailing 12, how much data we can get. And we increase that vacancy in our projections right off the bat, day one. And that helps protect us a little bit there. Rental growth, that's a big one, right? How, and there's two different types, right? There's manual rental growth where you can come in and you can add value, you can renovate apartments and increase the value manually. And then there's natural rent growth, which is appreciation. Buy it and sit on it. The market's going up. 
So you got to look at that and you got to say, okay, rental growth projections. And it's the beauty of real estate, Jacob, is there's so much data available. So you can look at the data for Phoenix. What's the projected rent growth? What has it been historically for two-bedroom apartments, et cetera? It's very specific. And that data is there. And so whatever the projected rent growth is, whatever it has been historically, again, we want to cut it back in our assumptions. So if it's projected to be 5%, it might project 2.5% natural rent growth, right? And then we look at cap rates. Like I mentioned, they're very low. We anticipate they're going to stay there for quite some time. But we don't project an exit cap rate. When we go to sell, we're always projecting 100 to 200 basis points of cap rate expansion. And if that kills the deal, we don't invest in the deal. All right. So we want to assume that cap rates are going to go up. And the same with interest rates. We assume that they're going to go up in underwriting. If that kills the deal and then no longer pencils or makes sense, then we won't invest in it. Acquisition price is another one, right? There's a lot of risk of overpaying today. And so you got to be sensitive, run a lot of comps, make sure there's buyers out there that are comfortable paying this price. And then financially, it doesn't make sense, right? Can you still have it produce positive cash flow? And then one thing we look at that is also think still with us today, it's been with us for a number of years. We take our total return, projected return for an investment. Let's say it's a five-year apartment hold. The first few years, we're going to add a bunch of value. We're going to renovate units. We're going to increase curb appeal, do a bunch of repairs, deferred maintenance, and increase the net operating income, maybe by 30%, 40%. That's manual appreciation, right? We want to know while we hold and do this, what's our cash on cash return? What's our cash flow? And then we look at the appreciation. Yeah. So Mark, you see hundreds of deals every year come across your desk. Only a few of them make the cut. What are some reasons you're rejecting these deals? Are they too rosy of projections? Is it just the deal's not right? Are there underwriting requirements you're seeing that aren't being met? Are there way too optimistic of rent growth? Or are there any reasons you're killing these deals? Everything you just mentioned, Jacob. <laughs> yeah, there's all of that on the financial model portion. We do see a lot of rosy projections. We think that, and kind of a gauge that I, I share with folks is you're looking at an opportunity. If you can, you want to try and look at everything and say, hey, do I feel very comfortable that we're going to hit the returns that are being shown or beat them? Okay. And if the answer is, I'm not sure, then you probably shouldn't invest. If the answer is, I don't know, I think we have all the stars have to align and every single thing in their thesis has to happen perfectly to get to that return, then that might be too fluffy, too rosy. And there's tons of that out there today, Jacob. I'll also add, you know, we're in the people game. We invest in real estate, but it's all controlled by people. And so we often will pass based on newer entrants, newer investment firms into the market that may not have a lot of experience. That's critical for us today. And why is because, again, the going in cap rates are so low, Jacob, that you can't really make a mistake on operational execution once you close on an asset you better be ready to perform because there's not enough margin to make a mistake as maybe five, six years ago. And so we look at focusing on operating partners that have a ton of experience, much better operational execution than others. Some of our operating partners have over a billion dollars of assets under management. You know, they got a lot of track records showing success and performance, and that alone can help reduce risk, especially in today's marketplace. 
Well, Mark, when you're looking at investing private equity, it's really important to have someone like you that's just so well-versed and in tune with these different asset classes across the U.S. and all these different operators in your network and just kind of have a better person in your corner to help invest this money. And that's kind of what you bring to the table. Sure. Yeah, Jacob, I think we've evolved over the years and we have a very specific skill set that seems to help a lot of folks access great opportunities. Yeah. Mark, as we're wrapping up here, let's go ahead and end with the lightning round. It's just a series of questions we ask every one of our guests. Are you up for it? Yeah, let's do it. All right. The first question is, what was your biggest hurdle getting started investing in real estate? And then what'd you do to overcome that? I think it was just getting comfortable with the numbers, right? Is this going to make any money or not? Am I going to lose money? Like, what don't I know, right? And so how did I overcome that? Well, I, I surrounded myself with another investor that had done it many times before. And we dove in and looked at some of the numbers, we looked at the properties and a little bit of a mentor to say the least helped me kind of get started. Sure. Well, Mark, do you have a personal habit that contributes to your success? Yeah, I think, and I don't have any crazy morning routine, Jacob, or like, <laughs> you know, I've heard so many things, but I yeah. wake up early. I read a lot, typically first thing in the morning on trends in our industry, what's going on and constantly reading. So that's kind of my personal yeah. habit is. If you love it, whatever it is, real estate, you know, sports, I don't care, but you can absorb and constantly be on top of trends that's going on that you'll probably become quite good at whatever it is that you love. Definitely agree. Mark, do you have an online resource you find valuable in your day-to-day life? There's a lot that we follow, I guess, Jacob, when you say online resource that we follow, it's a lot of publishings in our industries, in our asset classes. And so you can subscribe to multi-housing newsletter. You can subscribe to Green Street. They provide a ton of great data. We actually created something, Jacob, that might be helpful as a resource to investors of all different experiences. It's five steps to avoid risk in today's marketplace, really navigating passive real estate. And that's something that folks can get on our website. It's just smkcap.com forward slash five dash steps. It's the number five dash steps. And so it's something I put together over quite some time to try and be brief about five things that you should look out for when looking at passive deals. And each one's one page. So it's easy to stomach. And I think you can implement it right away. So it's smkcap.com forward slash five dash steps. We'll definitely link that in the show notes. Thanks for that. Mark, what book would you recommend to the listeners and why? Well, you know, everyone kind of recommends the one I'm going to share with you today, but Rich Dad, Poor Dad was a big one for me in 2004. I probably read it. And that was part of the time where I was sitting in that conference room wondering where I was going to be (laughs) in 20 years. That's a great starting point for those that maybe are working at a corporate job and trying to get out of it or into other areas of financial freedom. Yeah, great. Mark, last question in the lightning round, probably my favorite. If you were to go back and give advice to your 20-year-old self to get started investing in real estate, what would you tell 20-year-old Mark? I would say start earlier and (laughs) get in there sooner. And I also say in like 2008 and nine, I wish we had bought more, a lot more, right? And obviously hindsight, looking back, everyone's going to say that today. But at the same time, you know, those are some of the things that you learn over the years is that if there's opportunity in the streets, take advantage of it. And they don't always come around all the time, right? And so when they do, it might be once, two times in your lifetime. Do as much as you can and work even harder during those times. I love it. 
Mark, it's been a fun conversation listening to your journey and your investment thesis and your outlook on kind of where we're at in the marketplace today. If people want to learn more about what you're doing, possibly invest with you or just connect with you, where's the best place for them to find you? Sure. Yeah. I mean, you can start at our website. Again, our company name is SMK Capital Management. That's just my family and I's initials. And you can go to our website, smkcap.com. And there's a lot of information on there. There's a bunch of recent investments we've done that we summarized there. People can connect with us, sign up. They can get on our investor list and talk to me directly, email me. It's all available. We like to work with people and we tend to talk to just about everybody that wants to. Fantastic. Well, Mark, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. It was a lot of fun having you on. Until next time. My pleasure, Jacob. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. You too. up this week's episode with our guest, Dr. Mark Curry. I hope you got so much value from that episode. If you want to learn more, as always, anything we mention in the show or can be found in the show notes. You can tap on your screen on your iPhone or visit www.jacobayers.com or you can find the podcast and so much more content there. Well, hey, as always, I love hearing from you. If you ever want to reach out and connect with me, please do so. You can find me at the website or on social media. Until next week, engineer the lifestyle you want. You've been listening to the Real Estate Way to Wealth and Freedom podcast, providing you actionable content to build your real estate empire. Nothing on this show should be considered specific, personal, or professional advice. Please consult an appropriate tax, legal, real estate, financial, or business professional for personal advice. The opinions of guests are their own. Information is not guaranteed. All investment strategies have a potential for profit or loss. The host is operating on behalf of the Real Estate Way to Wealth and Freedom, LLC, exclusively.